Welcome to the Davis McGrath LLC IP webinar series for January 11th, 2012. My name is Kevin Thompson. I'm a member of the firm. And today we're going to be talking about using the Madrid Protocol for international trademark protection. We're going to be going today for about 30 minutes. Uh, the recording and the slides uh, will be posted at our website, which is shown in the address on your screen, which is blog.davismcgrath.com forward slash webinars. Uh, you can also sign up for the webinar mailing list there. Uh, our next webinar is coming up on February 8th, 2012, again from 12 to about 12.30 on the topic of copyright and fair use. So I'd like to talk about uh, international trademark protection in general first. Uh, the, the traditional problem here is uh, that every country has its own registration system. So here in the United States, uh, if you get a, a trademark registration through the United States Patent and Trademark Office or the USPTO, you have protection in the United States and certain territories, uh, but that's it. Um, if you want to get protection in Canada or Russia or China, you would need to uh, contact counsel in each of those countries and file an application there and that's certainly part of my practice. Um, but today we're going to be talking about uh, a system uh, which gets around some of that and solves that, that problem which is called the Madrid Protocol. And what is the Madrid Protocol? Um, it's a system that allows you to take a home trademark, either an application or a registration, which then can then be extended into another member country. Uh, there's an intermediate step. Uh, you take your home trademark, you create something called an international registration through uh, an organization called WIPO, the World Intellectual Property Organization. They uh, maintain a group called the International Bureau, uh, which maintains uh, the central Madrid registry. And then uh, once you have your international registration, as part of that, uh, it designates uh, member countries and uh, we're going to be talking a bit more about the specifics here. Um, there actually are two treaties. There's one called the Madrid Agreement, and there's another one called the Madrid Protocol. Uh, the United States is part of the protocol because it's much more uh, expansive and, and allows uh, applications to be used, not just registrations. Uh, the United States joined this uh, protocol in 2003. And currently, uh, 84 countries are members of the protocol. Now, the advantage of the Madrid Protocol system is that it creates this one central registration with payment of one fee. Um, you don't have to pay counsel in each country. Uh, you don't have to pay uh, each country separately. It's, it's one fee. And its primary advantage comes later at renewal because you file one renewal with WIPO, with the International Bureau. Uh, you don't file individual renewals. Um, and so you have lower cost of renewal time uh, because there's uh, no need to proceed country by country hiring counsel to uh, proceed with individual renewals. Uh, it's also a much, much easier system to administer. So if there's a name change or a change in ownership or a similar type of administrative thing, you can uh, file one change uh, which affects your rights in, in all the member countries. Now, there are a few disadvantages. Um, 
if you do get a refusal, which we'll talk about later, you will need to hire local council to um, handle the refusal. And this can make the initial application time a little bit more expensive than originally planned. Um, but uh, as long as you're aware of that possibility, um, it can be budgeted for. Um, another disadvantage is that uh, the registration, the international registration is dependent on the base registration from your home country during the first five years. And so there's a, a procedure called central attack, which we'll talk about later, uh, which allows uh, if the home registration is uh, canceled or otherwise disappears during the first uh, five years, uh, the international registration itself gets canceled. Um, another disadvantage is that the mark cannot be amended, um, which is something you could do uh, depending on the country. Uh, if you need to remove a period, uh, take, take out a, a the, or some other uh, merely descriptive element, um, you can't do that with an international application. And also you can't expand the goods or services uh, beyond those as originally filed. Now there's certain terminology that comes with uh, using the Madrid Protocol. Uh, contracting parties uh, means the countries that are members. And we'll talk a little bit more with some examples in a few minutes. Uh, the holder is the applicant. The holder is, is one that actually holds the international registration. The basic application or registration means uh, the original uh, application as filed in the home country. And then the office of origin is uh, your home country that you use. Uh, the initial contact you make uh, with the Madrid system is with your office of origin. For example, the USPTO has a uh, section called the Madrid Processing Unit or MPU. Uh, that handles this and uh, serves as our office of origin. The office of contracting party of the holder, uh, that would be uh, the office of, uh, like say for example, the United States. Um, and then the office of a designated contracting party would be uh, the office of uh, like the, one of the countries that you designate as part of your international registration. Now, here is a list of just some of the 84 entities that use the protocol. Uh, you see the United States over on the lower right. Um, the United Kingdom is certainly a member. An interesting one for U.S. people is uh, the European Union. Uh, that certainly is, is one method for filing a, a European Union application versus hiring counsel there. Uh, and it certainly allows you to get uh, members uh, that you wouldn't otherwise get. Um, such as um, uh, you could file a European Union and also Norway, uh, which is not a member of uh, the European Union, is uh, part of one filing. Uh, it also covers uh, popular destinations such as Japan or China. So who can use the protocol? Uh, to be able to file an international application using the USPTO as the Office of Origin, you must meet one of these three uh, threshold requirements. Uh, the first is you have to be a national in the United States, be domiciled in the United States, or number three, have a real and effective industrial or commercial establishment in the United States. 
and uh, this uh, comes up um, under U.S. law uh, to generally mean uh, you have to have uh, some sort of an office or other um, uh, industrial establishment in the United States to qualify. Uh, you can have, uh, you know, this Part 3 uh, industrial or commercial establishment in more than one country, um, but if you want to use the USPTO as your office of origin, uh, you must have that in the United States to do that. Now, if you're going to do that, uh, you have to file your application through the electronic application system, the TEAS system, or uh, you can do it on paper on a form provided by the International Bureau. Um, some threshold requirements is it must be based upon an existing application or registration, or even it can be based on multiples. So if you have uh, three or four separate U.S. applications and registrations that you want to combine into one central international registration, uh, you can do so. It's just a, a little bit more cumbersome and you've got to be a little bit more careful uh, during the application process. Um, uh, another threshold requirement is that the goods or services in the international application must be the same or narrower than the U.S. And uh, as part of the application, you must name the intended designated contracting parties. So as part of the initial application, you've got to figure out uh, which countries you want to extend your rights to. Um, there are some pitfalls to watch out for. Uh, the first we talked about briefly is that uh, the, it's uh, dependent on the status of the base application or registration for the first five years. Uh, another thing to look at is uh, if you've got an older U.S. registration, uh, you might need to reclassify certain older goods or services to meet current standards. Um, currently, uh, the ninth version of the Nice Agreement, uh, which covers the international classification system, is in place, and uh, the uh, WIPO uses the ninth version. So if uh, what you're classifying uh, doesn't meet uh, those definitional standards, uh, such as um, if you had filed back in the day when uh, your goods, uh, there was a sort of a miscellaneous class 42 where certain uh, you know, widespread things could be dumped into, uh, now there's 45 classes. And so um, if you've got uh, services that are now properly classified in one of those as opposed to in 42, uh, you need to reclassify. It won't affect your U.S. mark. Uh, you know, you're not reclassifying that, uh, but what you are doing is, as part of the international application, uh, you're filing it. And if you do it in an old, uh, the old way, uh, you might get an office action back from the International Bureau until it's properly in the, the current uh, system. Um, here's a look at uh, a fee calculator that's available from uh, the WIPO website. Uh, the link is there on the on the page, uh, wipo.int forward slash Madrid slash en slash fees. Um, if you'll see over here, um, what you're able to do is uh, tell it uh, what particular date you're looking for, um, the, the, the fee quote for, and you have to designate an office of origin, in this case I've chosen the United States, uh, how many classes, I've chosen one, and if it's a new application, uh, here's a list of all 84 countries. Uh, if you uh, hover over 
them on the actual website, you get a uh, pop-up uh, which which explains what this. In this case, EM is the European Union. Uh, that's the country code EM uh, for the European Union. And down here on the bottom, you'll see that the basic fee, uh, the fee that's paid to WIPO itself, is 653 Swiss francs. And then uh, the fee that's then paid to the European Union, based upon uh, your selection of it, is 1,111 Swiss francs. So your total Swiss francs is 1,764. Uh, since uh, WIPO is uh, in Switzerland, uh, you, um, you have to pay them in Swiss francs. Uh, there's many ways to do so. Um, I don't really want to get into technicalities here, but it's a fairly easy way to get money to them. Um, uh, Swiss francs aren't, uh, uh, they're doing a little better than the dollar currently. So to give you an example, 1,764 Swiss francs currently translates into U.S. dollars as $1,845.80 as of today. So once you filed your application, what happens? Um, in the United States, as the Office of Origin, it has to review and certify it, and as long as it meets their requirements, it's then sent to the International Bureau. Um, it is then reviewed by the International Bureau for irregularities. If there are any, the uh, International Bureau will notify the Madrid Processing Unit, which will then contact the holder. And then uh, usually you can file your response directly with the MPU, uh, who has then forward your response back onto WIPO. Uh, the registration is for a term of 10 years, uh, which starts from the date of application with the Office of Origin. Once you get your registration, uh, each designated entity is then notified. Um, they normally have between 12 to 18 months uh, to review the application. Uh, if they don't bring some sort of refusal or uh, file a notification that there might be refusal within 18 months, uh, the um, extension into uh, that country becomes automatically protected. So what happens if there's a refusal? Um, the contracting entity will then send the refusal to the International Bureau, which then notifies the holder. And the, the time for responding will, will start running when the International Bureau notifies the holder. Um, and keep in mind that um, there's a need to hire local counsel in order to respond. And uh, the time frame that's given depends on the country. And some countries have fairly short uh, time frames. Uh, so it's a good idea to, um, at the very least, have uh, you know, counsel in mind uh, in particular countries, uh, if necessary, uh, to deal with that, um, deal with these refusals as they come up. And uh, there's an additional uh, thing to think about, is that once you have your international registration, and later on uh, you want to designate additional countries to expand the rights of that into, uh, you can file what's called a subsequent designation. And that involves uh, taking uh, the international reg registration you currently have and um, expanding it, uh, filing a separate, it's essentially a new application into, into each country. Uh, the fee for that is slightly less uh, than filing a new application. Um, but the, uh, the, the, 
thing about that is it doesn't extend the term of the international registration. So for example, if you're on the eighth year of registration and you decide to extend it into a new country, it's only good for two more years because the life of the international registration is uh, 10 years total. And so that, that subsequent designation is only good for, for two years. Um, so um, I often recommend people, um, if, if cost is a concern, like if they're concerned about paying the fees for the designation and then almost within two years filing a, a renewal, um, would be to uh, wait until the renewal period. Uh, but it, it certainly uh, would depend on, uh, you know, the, the, it's a very fact-specific question as to whether or not it's the right time to do so. But it's certainly an option. Of course, you could always file your own uh, brand new international application, uh, international registration, but again, the costs for that are slightly higher. Um, another thing to keep in mind is uh, that this is an international system, and so uh, that the, the quirk this, this does to our system is that people can use the Madrid Protocol to designate the United States as a office, uh, a designated contracting entity. And so we've certainly seen a rise in um, the number of people uh, that, um, you know, have done so in the last few years. Um, uh, they have a different filing basis than, than what uh, we have. Uh, it, it's called a 66A filing basis, uh, which differs from 1A, which is based on actual use, or 1B, which is intent to use. Uh, in order to do this, uh, they must file a separate paper called a Declaration of Intent to Use. Uh, it has to be filed as part of their uh, application designated the United States. Uh, and another quirk in our system is that uh, if you do want to oppose uh, an extension into the United States, uh, you must use the electronic ESTTA system to file your opposition with the Trademark Trial and Appeal Board. Uh, you cannot file on paper to either extend or uh, otherwise um, oppose uh, an extension into the U.S. And uh, these extensions can become incontestable after five years of registration, which is the, the same as uh, a, uh, a regular registration could. Um, I wanted to give an example here of um, how to look into this. Um, just to give you some ideas of, as of the numbers uh, that you're looking for, there were uh, 4,680 applications filed from the United States uh, last year. Um, overall, system-wide, there were 40,711 new registrations last year. And uh, as of uh, 2010, which is the last figures I have, uh, there were 5.5 million active registrations system-wide. So there's certainly a wide number. And so this is their uh, look at the CERT system, which is called Romarin, um, which I believe stands for Read-Only Madrid Access Something Information Network. <laughs> um, so Romarin uh, allows you to uh, get information about uh, certain marks. Um, if you know the registration number, you can type that in. Uh, if you've got um, a particular holder name or representative you're looking for, a particular mark you're searching for, uh, if you want to narrow it down to a particular class of goods or services uh, or a particular office of origin, um, their basic search is uh, fairly um, capable of, of handling that. Uh, 
And just to give you an idea of uh, what an international uh, registration looks like, I pulled one up here. Um, I found one that owned by the Burger King Corporation called Home of the Whopper. Um, it's an extension of uh, their U.S. registration, uh, which has rights uh, dating back to 1965, uh, which then they just recently extended into the, uh, in 2009 to Syria. Uh, SY, uh, if you look down here on the bottom, is the designation on the protocol that designated Syria, and they tried to register uh, home of the Whopper there for drive-in restaurant services. Um, and uh, the original uh, mark uh, registered in 2009, um, the, the international registration, but uh, they did receive a refusal of protection in Syria. Uh, if you look down here on the bottom, uh, there is um, a date of February 17th, 2011. Uh, the Madrid system, since it's international, uses a, uh, a date, month, year system, so which is a little different. You've know, you got to make sure you you're type things in properly if you're looking for... Um, something uh, date-wise, but uh, so that means that's the 17th of February, and they have received a total refusal. Um, uh, there is a system in which you can pull up certain documents, and I was able to determine that uh, the refusal here was from Syria on the basis of uh, their law. Um, it was a matter of uh, this particular registration was uh, against their public policy for some reason, which they didn't explain. But uh, that just sort of gives you an idea of uh, the type of information you can find out. Um, the language of the original application was in English. Um, the original holder of the registration is Burger King Corporation, uh, the, which is a national of the U.S., uh, which has uh, the, it's the contracting state. It's a, a corporation out of Florida. The representative, uh, which is um, uh, this uh, person from the legal department in Miami. And um, you know, also, that's a very um, straightforward information. Um, uh, certain international registrations uh, have much more information than this, especially if there's a lot, uh, many more countries that are designated. You can go country by country and see uh, just exactly uh, what the basis of protection is, if there's some limitation on the rights in the particular country, uh, or if there is some... Um, uh, our total refusal or even a partial refusal, uh, you know, in the particular country. Uh, all the information is given there. So at this point, uh, uh, I should mention if there's any questions, uh, now would be a good time to do so. Uh, the um, webinar system allows you to do so. Um, there's a, a thing on your screen to allow you to, to uh, put questions in. So if you have any questions, uh, now would be a good time. Uh, the question is, uh, what happens if your U.S. registration is amended after the Madrid application? Uh, that's a good question. It depends on the nature of the amendment. Um, if it is a uh, limitation on the goods or services, um, the uh, Madrid processing unit uh, will notify uh, WIPO, uh, which will then uh, limit uh, the uh, international registration accordingly. Uh, if it's an amendment as to the mark itself, uh, that's not a permissible amendment. Are there any other questions?
I have in mind a non-consequential uh, change in the marked, uh, specifically running two words together to match the use in the specimen. Um, unfortunately, uh, that's not uh, a change uh, that uh, the Madrid system is designed to do. You can't change the mark itself uh, once the system is filed. Well, if there's no further questions, um, uh, feel free to, uh, you know, ask them uh, to me later. Um, uh, you can reach me at the address below. And a reminder, uh, the recording and slides will be posted at our website on the address there. And again, as a reminder, our next webinar is coming up on February 8th, 2012, on the topic of copyright and fair use. So I'd like to thank everybody for attending our webinar series, and have a good day. Thank you.